You're listening to the McKinsey Podcast, featuring wide-ranging conversations on the issues that matter in business and management. Welcome to this edition of the McKinsey Podcast. I'm Simon London, an editor with McKinsey Publishing. Today we're going to be talking about data analytics, how organizations can use the unprecedented volume of data at their disposal to transform industries, create new business models, and frankly make better decisions across everything they do. Joining me here in London to discuss the issues is Nico Henke, the global leader of McKinsey Analytics and also chairman of Quantum Black, uh, an acquisition we made in 2015. And joining us from San Francisco is Michael Chewy, a partner with the McKinsey Global Institute. Uh, I should say Nico and Michael are among the co-authors of The Age of Analytics, which is a new McKinsey Global Institute research report. And if we pique your interest uh, with this podcast, you can download the full report from mckinsey.com. But uh, Nico and Michael, thanks for joining me today. Thank you very much. Delighted to be here. Thanks. It's a pleasure. So um, before we get into the uh, detail on the latest research, I think it might be helpful just to take a step back uh, and clarify what we mean in terms of the age of analytics. Uh, I think, you know, cynics would say, come on, companies have been collecting and analyzing data uh, forever, pretty much. So what's really new here? What's driving the, the data analytics revolution? Thanks, Simon. It's a, it's a great question. But we think there are three things which have really changed. The first thing which has changed uh, is simply there's loads of more data. Uh, believe it or not, but about 90% of the world's data existing today didn't exist two years ago. 90%. The second one is we simply uh, have computing power with the cloud and connectivity which is much, much lower cost than it was ever before. So we can simply compute more. The third is these two things, um, leveraging machine learning techniques, um, can analyze with, uh, we can analyze much more. To give you an example, uh, in the past it took a statistician to come up with a potential hypothesis for a regression. It took a day or two, you could make maybe three a day and so on. With these new techniques, if I add all these things, uh, things together, we can, in our normal work, do hundreds of millions of calculations a day, which obviously increases the granularity of our work. And if I could just build on that idea, I think while all those trends have come together, one of the things that's really happened in the time between we published uh, the time we published our big data report in 2011 and now, is the degree to which um, CXOs and senior leaders have started to understand that this is changing the basis of competition in individual sectors. And so while we've discovered there's a lot more work to be done, at least I think we've seen the awareness um, at the executive level of the importance of using data and analytics in order to compete and increasingly make decisions in very different ways. For example, conducting experiments uh, rather than just basing your judgments uh, on the experience that you've had in business. Michael, as you mentioned, in 2011, we published a, a big piece of research um, flagging the transformative potential, I think it's fair to say, of, of this new wave of data and analytics. Um, just published a new piece of research. Um, five years on, how much of the potential that we identified back then has been realized? What does the report card look like? To be honest, the, 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 the progress has been mixed. Um, we have seen some industries and some domains, such as location-based services, uh, and to a lesser extent retail, um, really have moved the needle within those industries. One of our observations is those are places where we've seen digitally native companies create competition, and that really forced the industry forward. Uh, however, there are a number of other industries, whether it's 
public sector, uh, whether it's healthcare, uh, and even in manufacturing, where some progress has been made, but honestly, with regard to the total amount of value that could potentially be captured, relatively, uh, you know, there's a lot more work to be done. Uh, less than 30% of the value uh, that we identified has been captured. And so that means we still believe, in fact, that that value is there to be captured. In fact, we, we've identified even further ways in which data and analytics can be used to capture value there. But there are a number of obstacles uh, that need to be overcome uh, in order for that, for that value to be captured in those industries. The obstacles that need to be overcome, uh, maybe this is one for you, Nico, are they primarily technical? Are they organizational? Like what, what's getting in the way here? The main is, uh, obstacle is organizational. Um, and it's, if in order to really get the value from the data, you need to kind of do five things at the same time. And you need to do them all. If you do not do one of them, you basically lose out on the value. Uh, so we have already established um, capturing the data is one of them and doing mathematical models is another one. Now, doing all of these things in itself doesn't create any value. So um, the third thing, therefore, which needs to happen is you need to really be very thoughtful on the source of the value. What kind of use cases are you actually trying to drive? So if you're doing a lot of analysis, uh, analysis and, and, and modeling without actually being really focused on the business value, uh, you lose out. Now, Let's assume you do all these three things. So you are running a bank, you found the top 30 use cases, for example, in revenue management, and uh, like next customer to buy or whatever it is, next product to sell and so on. Um, the fourth thing which needs to happen is you need to kind of embed it into your processes because large companies have hundreds of, hundreds of thousands of employees, and if you don't embed the result of the findings into the processes, Essentially, nothing will change. And finally, capabilities. You need to both, in the line management, uh, build the capabilities to use all this uh, result in order to figure out uh, how to make decisions in a different way. But also, you need to have the capabilities to you know, analyze data uh, and, and do all of these things, first of all. And just to add, uh, I think what we found in many cases is that these companies have started to invest. And in fact, have gotten to the point of doing the modeling and, and, and deriving some insights. But that organizational difference, that, that change that has to occur between discovering an interesting insight and being able to scale it to the size of an organization, to really embed it within the daily process of, processes of an organization so that it moves the needle in corporate performance. Um, I think again and again in many companies, we've seen that that's, that's where a lot of that gap has occurred. Uh, and that does require, as Nico said, a really moving across all five of those uh, uh, different components. You're right, Michael. And, and just uh, to illustrate that point you just made, um, we spent just uh, a couple of days with 200 of the world's leading data scientists. And we were talking about the topic, how to interact with the CEO and the executive team. And they were all quite unhappy with how that is going because they feel that the executives don't quite understand what they're doing. And when you then see the executives, um, they feel that the data scientists are not focusing on the key business problem. So there is a translational task. And indeed, we at McKinsey 
are training 3,000 of our colleagues to become translators, to essentially to, to know deeply the business problems, but also understand the data science and the computer science and aspects of it, so they can actually tie these things together on behalf of our clients. So back in, in 2011, we, we famously predicted quite a big talent gap in, in terms of you know, real hardcore data scientists. It sounds like, well, that may still be an issue, but uh, you also need this, this layer of translation of translators. Is, is that right? That's exactly right. Uh, we did look in 2011 and hypothesized uh, and analyzed the potential gap in, in terms of the number of people with deep analytical skills, the people we now call data scientists, uh, that were being generated at current course and speed and how many we would need. Uh, we've seen that gap actually uh, occur. Uh, and of course, the market has cleared. We're seeing more and more academic programs, more training programs to produce more data scientists, and yet we have seen data scientists' uh, wages increase, which is an indicator of, of uh, this supply and demand dynamic. Going forward, we continue to, to, to see this uh, need for more data scientists um, uh, accelerate. At the same time, as Nico described it, there is also a, another role, and it's a, a, a much larger number of people that are able to uh, take the domain knowledge of an industry of a function um, and, and, and know enough data science in order to, to help translate that to make it uh, consumable by the rest of the organization. And we're talking millions of people here uh, that we'll need in, in these types of roles. So something else that I know is a very big deal for, for companies is this whole issue of data strategy, actually figuring out what data you need to satisfy the use cases, where you're going to get it, how you're going to govern it. Do you just want to say a little about that, Nico? We think it's one of the most foundational enablers, um, close to the importance of talent as well, uh, to, to get data, uh, to get value from data and analytics. And at the end of the day, when you prioritize on what kind of areas do you want to focus your uh, business improvement on, it is a good time to think about what is your longer-term master data model. What for an organization uh, is the kind of data I would like to, uh, to receive? And then to think about how you actually get those. And for example, one bank uh, has gone through a two-year exercise now to really build an enterprise-wide data lake, which is one of the few banks in the world where they have that. And what they did, they created a war room of about 150 people. They identified uh, a number of uh, what they called golden sources, you know, where the data comes from. And they went golden source by golden source to work with the business on improving the data quality. To give you one example, they had very poor information about, um, in that particular country, about uh, the names of their customers, because uh, all their customers with their middle names, last names, first names, had three or four differences. The credit card product would have that name, the, the uh, bank account would have had that name, and the addresses were all kind of misspelled and so on. So they had essentially, on average, three or four different descriptions for each customer. Uh, which, of course, makes it hard to make sense of that particular data set. So they went all the way to the business owners, like the people who opened the accounts, the people who are kind of selling credit cards, etc., etc., to make sure the processes were, were simplified and digitized with which data was captured. And that then helped them over time to get much, much higher quality data and linkable data. The fascinating thing about this is this is remarkably unglamorous work in many ways, right? This is not at the bleeding edge of data science. Uh, this is not machine learning. This is the real blocking and tackling of, of management, essentially. And it kind of brings home why a lot of companies and a lot of industries actually 
you know, the potential that they realized is only 30% or less, because a lot of this hard graph needs to be done um, before you can really realize the value at scale. Yes, and we think the best way to, to do that is to begin to create a first uh, repository of integrated data, to begin to show the value in the first year, to begin with something, even if it's imperfect, and then to say, gee, if we had this and this additional data, or if we had a slightly more clean data in this particular area, then we could lift our, you know, the value we create yet to a completely new level, and then take it in an iterative way from there. The leaders are doing it like that. They never kind of plan forever one, one set of uh, data strategy out. Uh, but they have a vision of where they want to go, and then they build it iteratively to that vision. Most data scientists nowadays say that over half their time is taken up with data wrangling, just trying to solve some of these problems. But they, solving those problems are a prerequisite to capturing any value at all. A lot of what we've been talking about so far is, is applying data and analytics almost within the sort of existing paradigm of existing businesses, uh, improving organizations, optimizing, and so on. Do you just want to talk a little bit around, uh, Nico, what we're seeing out there and some of our favorite examples of, of really quite brand new things? What we are now seeing is essentially that data actually changed the borders between industries. For example, if you take uh, telephone ping data in an uh, emerging market in uh, Latin America, they, they are being used to improve the quality of underwriting of uh, credit cards and credit risk because uh, the telephone ping data are much, much better predictors of certain behaviors and with that we can actually tell more than banks traditionally could and improve credit uh, uh, scoring uh, a lot. The implication for that is vast because you essentially see a value pool between the, the telecom industry and the banking industry shift. And you almost ask yourself who is the right owner for making credit risk decisions. I think another driver of these crossing of industries and industry disruptions is what we sometimes describe as orthogonal data. You know, many times organizations and industries have used data for many, many years. Uh, but what can cause disruption is a new source of data which allows either incumbents to, to, to drive forward in terms of their performance uh, against their competition or, in fact, new players. Um, so insurance is a, a perfect case of that, um, which is analogous to the underwriting example that Nico described. But when you start to bring new sources of data in, so take, for example, telematics data, real behavioral data, um, about either the organizations, people, or devices that you're insuring. Um, oftentimes that can allow you to make a, a much more fine-grained uh, risk decision in underwriting, but you can also make a pricing decision. Uh, and furthermore, not only can you make a pricing decision in, in insurance, now you can actually help your customer uh, manage their risks better. So I, you know, I, I often joke that um, I, I only interact if I'm lucky with my auto insurance company twice a year. And it's not a great experience either. I pay the bill. And worse yet, if I have a further interaction, uh, it's because uh, I've had an accident, which again is not very happy. On the other hand, imagine an insurance company that provided me with data that said, you drove very safely today, et cetera. And so that can not only change the type of, uh, uh, not only change the performance of the insurance product, but can actually change the types of interactions you have with your customers. Uh, and so that, that can change the basis of competition uh, in that industry. And that's because of orthogonal data, because of new sources of data. Another example is data-driven discoveries, for example, 
um, in one uh, particular uh, situation, uh, it took us about one week uh, to uh, be as smart as the whole history of clinical research in the world to predict who is going to go to a hospital within a month's time. So, you know, basically using a very good national data set, we could come up with a model which predicted that as good as all clinical research ever done. And it took then another two weeks to essentially have a factor three lift in predictions of over all clinical research ever done by linking orthogonally, as, as Michael was uh, uh, suggesting, uh, data sources to this particular data set which people hadn't connected before. So, for example, feeling a feeling of loneliness is a great predictor of uh, ending up in a hospital for elder, frail elderly people. Uh, that's just one example. Nico, you mentioned machine learning. Um, machine learning, deep learning, um, some, some of the more sort of bleeding edge uh, technical side of this. Am I right to intuit that a lot of the things you're talking about now, the sort of very advanced use cases, uh, very big data, that there's machine learning at work? Absolutely. And the fundamental difference between those and traditional um, uh, maths is that uh, in linear regression you have a particular hypothesis and then you go for the data and then you find a correlation between them. And the fundamental difference with uh, these techniques is that the machine finds correlation for you and you then look at the output and try to interpret what you're seeing. That's the fundamental difference. And the power of that is, is essentially caused by your being able to do hundreds of millions of calculations a day, um, not necessarily you know, uh, pursuing a particular hypothesis, but looking at a pattern uh, in a new way. Yeah, in a, in a computer science sense, one of the things that you might describe it is it's the difference between programming a machine and training a machine to learn. This is some of the most cutting edge, most exciting things that we're seeing in terms of the use of data. Uh, and we tried to, to understand where these types of techniques uh, could actually create the most value. We expected to find a Pareto curve where 80% of the value might have come from maybe solving 20% of the problems, that, that a lot of the value would be concentrated. And what we actually found well, a little bit was the opposite, which is that the potential for these technologies to really apply across the board. Every single one of the 120 industry problems that we identified was identified by at least one expert, and usually multiple experts, as being one of the top three problems that machine learning could help solve in that industry. So again, what we found was that this is a set of techniques which has broad applicability to really add value across an, every industry in the economy. I think it might be helpful to uh, bring out some examples here. Uh, you know, what are some of the things where, you know, you might not intuitively expect uh, machine learning to, to have an application? We heard from an industry executive who said the three sexiest words in the industrial internet are no unplanned downtime. This is the idea of using predictive maintenance to fix something before it breaks. And what we've seen uh, in large complex assets, uh, whether it's uh, locomotives or, or whether it's uh, pumps, that if you get this continuous stream of data, very detailed set of data, large amount of data, uh, and then apply machine learning, train it to understand, to try to discover when this machine is going to break, you can actually discover the signals that allow you to, to go fix something even before it breaks. And that has huge amounts of value 
not only can you reduce the cost of fixing something, which usually are more expensive than the preventative maintenance itself, you can keep that asset from breaking down. And again, then the trains can actually run, a factory can run. Usually the benefits of fixing something before you break it have a lot more to do with all of that avoided cost from having something out of service than actually the cost of repairing it itself. And by the way, healthcare you can actually just view as predictive maintenance on the human on the human machine. And again, that it's it's so much more valuable to keep someone from having to go into a hospital, from going to an emergency department, uh, rather than trying to heal the sick. We were working with a company looking for growth, uh, a retailer in a very large uh, city in the world, and. Um, they basically said, we have 1,000 outlets and we basically feel we can't grow any further. So they're out of opportunities to grow and uh, help us. And just help us understand where can we actually find more you know, spaces, so to speak, where to put uh, our shops. And with uh, artificial intelligence machine learning applications, um, we found that the stores uh, which are located next to a laundromat uh, for a particular segment of people uh, would be highly, highly successful. And we found 850 new locations, which they had never thought about um, based on that analysis, and they are now heavily growing. So you, it's an incredible uh, opportunity to link, for ex in this case with geospatial data, uh, things you wouldn't have thought about before. Now, it's interesting, a lot of these um, cases and use cases we're putting up there are just, you know, well, say just, they're examples of how to sell more staff to make machines more efficient, less planned downtime. Uh, you know, an obvious repast here is, you know, is this going to make the world a better place? We think so. I think there are uh, other examples. Um, there, it makes um, uh, some prisons in the world safer places, uh, reduced violence. It makes uh, hospitals finding at-risk patients, for example, um, I've recently been to a kind of uh, emergency room with 180 very sick people in them, all elderly. And the hospital uh, uses a machine learning algorithm to predict of these 180 people who needs uh, how much intense care um, and who needs kind of minute-by-minute -minute supervision versus who needs much less uh, supervision. And because they can target more senior uh, staff to these uh, very sick people, they can actually uh, keep them alive. And they're their success is a 36% lower admission rate. So people essentially get turned around in the emergency room and sent home uh, versus traditional models, which is a resounding uh, success. So it can be used uh, for all sorts of uh, uh, use cases in where, where data exists about human behavior. Another case where machine learning can greatly improve uh, uh, the human experience is the ability to understand natural language. I'm a former artificial intelligence researcher, and it, for a long time it took a, it was so hard to try to get machines to understand spoken language. And they're not perfect at it now, but we've seen great advances through using more and more data in machine learning in order to better understand voice. And that has the ability to enable all kinds of people for whom, you know, say the elderly, where it might be more difficult for them to use a traditional interface to be able to look at a small mobile screen and type, etc. And just simply being able to speak into the phone and ask for directions to a place or be able to have the phone just call the person that they want to call. The obvious comeback is, you know, that's making me think that quite a lot of jobs 
could be replaced as well. Customer service type jobs that, that rely on, you know, clearly natural language processing is, is you know, part of what you do. Um, what, what do we think about um, the labor market impact of all of this? One of the things that we would note is as this technology continues uh, to increase in its uh, ability, it does enable more and more activities which we currently pay people to do in the economy uh, to be automated. Two other things that we've discovered about these technologies. One is that it will actually take quite some time for the activities that we currently pay people to do in the economy uh, to be completely automated. So there's time to adapt as we adopt, but there's no time to wait. We actually have to start understanding how these technologies might be used in the economy. The other thing that we've discovered, though, is that while we have time to adapt as we adopt, there, it doesn't look likely that we'll actually have a surplus of labor. In order for us to have the type of economic growth that we need in both the developed as well as developing markets, not only do we need all the machine learning that we can get, we need everybody to be working as well. And so we'll need to make sure that as people are displaced by technology, we find productive things for them to continue to do in the economy. We need to find things for people to do in order to have the economic growth that we need. And there are a number of areas where this really can help to solve problems which otherwise couldn't be solved. For example, in healthcare, um, if the uh, trend of the last 80 years uh, would continue where healthcare has outgrown the economy by two percentage points a year, roughly, then by 2100, 98% of the US economy would be for healthcare. Now that can obviously not happen. The need may be there, but some other things need to be found in order to deliver all that. And um, that's where robots, sensors, automation, big data monitoring uh, can make healthcare actually much better and more sustainable. All that being said, while we think there, you know, data and analytics can drive tremendous value for companies, can derive great benefits for individuals, there are real risks and there are things that we'll need to manage. Um, people have an interest in their own privacy. We'll need to try to find that balance to understand you know, when people uh, can value the use of data and analytics and, and when they'll want to think about you know, uh, uses of data that they actually don't want to have happen. Cybersecurity is a huge issue as well. Uh, we think there's great value in combining data from multiple sources. Uh, but again, if that data or those analytics uh, are used in ways or by actors that, uh, that you know, whether they're criminals or others, um, uh, that, that's, a, that's a risk that needs to be managed. So a question that you do see uh, written about uh, a fair amount in, in the media, and I think it's, it, it's a legitimate concern, is you know, if we have algorithms are making decisions about more and more aspects of our lives, whether it's how we're deployed in an organization, uh, for example, or, or, you know, the level of healthcare that we might be offered, how do we know that those uh, algorithms are constructed in a way which is, is fair, transparent? Well, a couple of thoughts about this. Um, you know, first of all, Again, the use of data and analytics by the, itself doesn't mean you're going to get good answers. Um, you have to use it well. And one of the things that we often find is a problem is that the underlying data set that you use to make data and analytics sometimes can have issues with it itself, and you have to understand the data. We've seen multiple examples of this being an issue. Internet of Things data 
um, being used, for instance, uh, in Boston in order to identify where there are potholes by using the accelerometers within smartphones. Well, again, one of the issues there is who has smartphones. And again, that changes the population uh, of people who have smartphones and then, in quotes, biases the data towards places where there were simply more sensors uh, looking for those types of potholes. So again, you will find, if, unless you understand the provenance of data, un unless you understand the metadata, as you might describe it, the data about data, how it's collected, what are the underlying um, assumptions behind that data, you are likely to have, discover that you have issues there. One of the biggest problems uh, that we find now is model opacity. What do you do when this extremely complex machine learning model uh, seems to perform very, very well, but it's actually very difficult to figure out how it discovered the things that it discovered. Uh, and then we actually find some regulations where you're not allowed to use uh, these types of models unless you're able to explain them. And so those are going to be some of the challenges going forward. Exactly right, as Michael was saying. At, at the end of the day, uh, machine learning is uh, pattern discovery. It discovers pattern which historically have been true in data. And if you then act on those you know, rules, you first need to exp assume that these patterns are actually going to consist in the future. That's why machine learning is uh, frequently not applied to problems under true uncertainty. So, for example, investment problems. There are certain types of investment problems. These techniques will not help you much with where heuristics are, are much better. And, um, and then there are other uh, problems where the system counteracts. Uh, for example, in, in human performance management, where when an organization finds out how essentially performance is measured, that has an implication. That's sometimes why uh, models age, not so just humans age, but models age as well. And you need to kind of readjust them all the time. So that's all we have time for today. Uh, thank you very much, uh, Miko Henke, uh, here in London and in San Francisco. Thank you, Michael Chewy, for, for joining us. And again, to download the report, The Age of Analytics, please visit us on mckinsey.com. You've been listening to the McKinsey Podcast. To learn more about McKinsey, our people and our latest thinking, visit us at mckinsey.com or find us on LinkedIn, Twitter and Facebook.